I knew next to nothing about God. Uh, I did not know who Jesus Christ was, and uh, I knew nothing about the Bible. I didn't know there was an Old Testament or a New Testament. I was headed for an early death. I was a fatherless, wild kid, and I was headed for hell. And on December 18th, 1965, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I heard for the first time that Jesus Christ was God's son and that he died on the cross for my sins, and if I would trust him, he would forgive me for my sins, and if I would trust him for life, he would come into my heart, and I would become a new person, and he would never leave again. And when I heard that message, I said, you got to be kidding. I mean, if I stumble, and if I try to live a good life, and then I fail, because when I was little, I'd tried to live a good life for, for a while, and it just didn't work out. In fact, I asked my dad when I was about eight years old, how you get to heaven? And here's what he told me. He said, well, son, when you die, you're going to go up before uh, St. Peter, and he's going to open two books. One's the book of all the good things you've done, and the other's the book of all the bad things you've done. And then he's going to set some scales on a table, and he's going to take all the good deeds and put them on one side of the scales, and he's going to take all the bad deeds and put them on the other side of the scale. And if the good deeds go down, then you get to go to heaven. But if the bad deeds go down then you're going to go to hell forever and ever and ever. I was eight years old when I heard that. And you know what my response was? My response was, oh, well, I might as well have a good time. Because <laughs> by the time I was eight, I knew, I already knew, you'd really, it really is difficult to live a good life. And then I lost my father when I was 12, and I just committed myself to being wild, just as wild as I could be. I'd never heard that he would forgive me. I'd never heard that if I trusted him for forgiveness and new life, he would come into my heart and never, ever leave again. And the moment I heard that, I said, you mean if I stumble and fall? And the young man who was talking to me said, oh, you will stumble and fall, but he'll forgive you and pick you back up. And that night, I trusted him for forgiveness and for new life. And he came into my heart and made me an entirely new person. Uh, and in fact... It started the next day. We, we, uh, there, were f there were four of us. My dad committed suicide when I was 12 years old. I was the oldest of four uh, kids. And he left uh, a 34-year-old widow with an 11th grade education to care for four kids. And so my mom had to go to work and learn how to sell insurance. And so we always had a housekeeper. And uh, the next day, December 19th, I went home, and I'd stolen a bunch of shirts from uh, Cox's department store on the east side of Fort Worth, and I had dropped them off on Friday, and I, and I told our housekeeper, Bobby, I, I want you to iron these shirts, because I'm going to meet some girls on the next day, and I want to have one of these new shirts, the Madras shirts, you know, they were real in style in 1965, and I said, I want you to have these ready, and uh, so I walk back home, I mean, I, I come back home, and there are all those shirts still in the wrappers on my bed, she hadn't ironed them. And she was at the ironing board in the other room. I walked in. I'm 12 years old, and I mean 12, 12 hours old in the Lord now. I walk through the door. I look at her, and I go, uh, Bobby, I have those shirts in my hand. I told you to iron these blankety-blank shirts, and I needed them today, and I just tossed them on the floor. I turned around and walked out, slammed the door to my room. And when I got out of my room, I went, oh, you, you can't do that anymore. Uh, and I just went, excuse me, Lord. And I walked back in, and I said, oh, Bobby, um, I am so sorry uh, that I 
talk to you like that. In fact, I don't even want to use those words anymore, and those shirts aren't uh, important. I've got something else I can wear, and I just picked them up and turned around, and I heard this plop, you know. <laughs> she just had a heart attack right on the spot. What's happened to that kid? Well, what happened to him was the God of the universe just took up residence in his heart and said, you can't do that anymore. Somebody stuck a Bible in my hand and says, here, read this. And I started reading. And then somebody stuck some navigator verses in my hand and said, here, memorize these. And I started memorizing. And within a few months, I was actually teaching Bible studies. Oh, I also witnessed to all my friends on the football team and lost all my friends on the football team. <laughs> I wasn't too subtle in the way I witnessed. I, I, it went something like this. Look, we're going to have an atomic war with the Russians. That's for sure. And it's going to, whole earth is going to be obliterated. Or God's going to come back. Either way, you're in a mess if you don't give your heart to God. And uh, that was kind of my main message to the guys. <laughs> and, and I just lost all my friends. And then I made new friends with the kids down at church and started reading the scriptures, started telling people about the Lord. And I came under the spell when I, was, uh, I started working in Young Life. And I came under the spell of the Dallas Seminary guys. And, man, those guys knew the Bible. It was, it was uh, awesome. And so I started, I, I decided when I got out of college, I would go to Dallas Seminary. And when I got out of Dallas Seminary, um, I ended up being a Greek and Hebrew major. I didn't know that I had a facility for, those, for languages, but it turned out I did. It was kind of easy for me. And I, and I enjoyed it. Unlike most of the guys complained about Hebrew, I go, ah, oh, this is fun. And, and so when I graduated Dallas Seminary, I decided to enroll in the doctoral program. I didn't want to be anything but a young life leader. I didn't want to be a professor. I didn't want to be a pastor in church. I just wanted to be a young life leader, lead kids to Christ and disciple them. But I wanted to know the Bible better. And uh, I wanted to be able to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, just open it up without a dictionary, without anything. And I could already do that in Greek. Now I wanted to be able to do it in, in Hebrew. So I thought, well, I'll just do the doctoral program. And after that, and I can read and I'll never lose that skill I ended up becoming a professor they got so hard up at one time they go would you teach some classes here and then I just stayed there for 12 years and and taught as a professor of Old Testament Semitic languages and uh, completely disbelieved in the supernatural I, I didn't believe God was healing I didn't believe God was speaking uh, I, all I believed he did was he helped you study the Bible and he would transform people I still think that's the greatest miracle God changing a human personality I, I think it's much easier to see a physical miracle than it is to see a human being actually transformed it takes greater power to transform a human spirit than it does to transform a human body and I had all these arguments for why God wasn't doing supernatural stuff anymore and, and if you will uh, just turn to first uh, Corinthians 420. 1 Corinthians 420. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Now I had organized all my Christian life around talk. <laughs> that I mean our, our church buildings are organized for talk. They're not organized for power. They're like lecture halls for the most part. And you go to England or Europe and you see these real narrow aisles and all that. They're not organized to pray for people. They're organized to sit and listen to a lecture. And I had to organize my life around acquiring more and more knowledge to be able to talk better and, and to be able to present things and to be able to argue with atheists and agnostics. And I did that all the way through college. The kingdom of God for me really was a matter of talk, and somebody tried to point this out to me, and I had all, ex I had all kinds of explanations about why that power in the New Testament was no longer available. 
And somewhere around 1985, a man that was one of my heroes, written about 20 books at the time, was a best-selling author for, for uh, InterVarsity Press, godly, brilliant, professor of psychiatry. We used his books in all of our Sunday school classes in a Bible church that I'd started on the west side of Fort Worth. I met him, and uh, he got me to question some of the arguments I had against power, some of the arguments I had against the supernatural. And I started reading the Bible around the beginning of 1986 with an open mind about this whole issue of power. Does God really do those things he did in the Bible? Is he really speaking today? Not can he do it, because anybody's going to say God can do anything. He's God. That's not the issue. Can he do it? Can he heal? Can he raise the dead? Well, of course, we know he can. The issue is, does he do that in a church today? in the 21st century? Does he really do those things? Does he really give dreams? Does he really give visions? Does he still do those things? And, and that was the question I began to ask. And I had all these arguments. Some, most, some were biblical, but most were just theological arguments. And I began to read the Bible with an open mind on this whole issue of power. And before I said, well, you know what power is? Power is just the, it, it's it's the supernatural energy to transform a human heart and to cause it to believe and cause that human heart to follow God. That's what power is. But then you start looking up all the words for power, I mean the, the actual Greek word for power. And, oh, and by the way, that was my specialty as a teacher. I taught uh, how to draw out the meaning of, of uh, Hebrew and Greek text, and one of my specialties was showing people how to define words. Uh, it's called lexicography. And so I knew how to do a word study, and so I started looking up all the references to power. And here's some of the stuff I found. Um, this is Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit... And news about him spread through the whole countryside. And you know what happens in that context? He's healing people and casting out demons. So the kind of power this is talking about is God's supernatural energy to make wrong things right. To make wrong things right in our human personality, in our bodies, and in the spiritual realm. I had narrowed it down to one little focus of of power, just making people have better moral lives, but the word meant way more than that. Here's another one. This is uh, in Luke 5, 17. It says, One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. Wow. And you know, something else that verse caused me to think about was, and the power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. Well, why would he say that? Except sometimes the power of the Lord is not present to heal the sick. And I had been thinking all this stuff was automatic. You know, if you had a gift of healing, wham, it just worked every time. But when I started looking into the New Testament, I found out the gifts weren't automatic. I found out that Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. And if his father wasn't healing, then he didn't heal. Or how about this one? This is... uh, the, the uh, Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount. This is the introduction to the Sermon on the Plain, okay? It says, and all the people tried to touch him, Jesus, because power was coming from him and healing them all. I thought you prayed for people at the end of the message, but here <laughs> there was some kind of visible manifestation of power coming from Jesus so that 
everybody could see it, and everybody who touched him got healed. Wow. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, I, I started a Bible church, and man, we really, really believed the Bible. We spent a lot of time teaching the Bible. That was all of us pastors. That was our specialty. And I thought you were a New Testament church if you believed what the New, Ch- New Testament church believed. But you're not a New Testament church if all you do is believe what they believe. You're only a New Testament church if you do what the New Testament church did. And one of the things they did was they prayed for the sick, and they prayed for the sick effectively. Another thing they did was prophesy. Um, There's another one. When Jesus, Luke 9, 1, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure all diseases. And on and on and on and on it goes. When you're talking about power, uh, it does, it's never limited to just the ability to live a moral life. Now, here's a, a passage. This is 1 Corinthians 14.1. This is a command to the whole church, to you and to me. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Do you, do you desire spiritual gifts this morning? Do you know what yours are? Do you desire to move in your spiritual gift? And as a church body, do you desire the gift of prophecy? I mean, that, that's what the Apostle Paul says. This is what the New Testament church does. Now, I had a way of explaining this away at one time. I go, and all my friends did this too. We go, uh, desire the gift of prophecy. Well, you see what he really means is inspired, powerful preaching. That's what he means when he says the gift of prophecy. But did you know in Greek... There is a word for teaching. Did, did you know that? In Greek, they have a, a, a word for teaching. And you know what it is? It's actually uh, teaching. <laughs> and they got a word for preaching in, 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 in Greek, too. And you know what that one is? Preaching, yeah. Oh, man, you, you catch on quick. Greek's not that hard, is it? <laughs> and they got one for prophecy, and it's prophecy or prophesying. And, in fact, when you see prophets prophesying, they're not teaching, they're actually predicting the future, like Agabus in Acts eleven twenty nine. He predicted a worldwide famine was going to come. That's what, what it is. It's actually prophesying, and this is what Paul commands us to do. Which do you think is more common? The gift of preaching, or, excuse me, the gift of teaching or the gift of prophecy? Prophecy, hands down. And James, uh, the, the Holy Spirit says, Let not many of you become teachers. But in 1 Corinthians, he's encouraging the whole body to pursue prophecy. And uh, one long passage here. This is 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. So we've been in the Gospels, we've been in Paul, and now we go to Peter's writings, and you find they're all saying something similar. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. There's a whole lot of stuff we could say about the end of all things is near. But in light of the end being near, Peter says, I want the whole church to do three things. The first one is pray. Now, the second one is, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, And then here's a concrete uh, illustration of love. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now he's going to say, here's the third thing I want you to do. 
Each one of you should use whatever gift, and this is the word for spiritual gift, whatever spiritual gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, you've got one of the speaking gifts, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. End of all things is near, people. So you've got to do three things. You've got to pray. There'll be five roads in the last days. They'll all look good, but only one will be right. You've got to pray to get on the right road. You've got to love one another above all things. You've got to love one another. And then you pursue spiritual gifts. Why? Because you're going to need power like never before, and the spiritual gifts are simply tools for building the body of Christ. They're empowered love. So I started reading over things like this, and then all the objections that I had began to pass away. And here's some typical objections. Prophecy means powerful preaching. I already talked about that. Uh, only the apostles did miracles, and you're just an ordinary Christian. Why do you think you would do miracles or, or, or heal? But when you start looking at the New Testament, you find out, uh, well, Stephen and Philip, they weren't um, apostles, but they did miracles. And somebody goes, well, they were friends of the apostles. Oh, okay, so only the apostles and their friends do miracles. Uh, but that's not even true. Because when you look in 1 Corinthians, you, found out, you find out that he gave gifts of healing and miracles just to ordinary folks like you and me. And Paul, Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 7, all of uh, the gifts are present and working here. The apostles did miracles just to authenticate their teaching, the Bible. And now that we have the Bible, we no longer need the miraculous. The only problem with that is the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say now that, now that you have the Bible or when the Bible is complete, you won't need uh, authentication of, of the message. And that is one of the purposes of, of the supernatural is to authenticate the message about Jesus, not never to authenticate the person but to, except for Jesus. But it gives about 9 or 10 or 11 other reasons in the New Testament why Jesus and the apostles did uh, miracles, and they're all rooted in the eternal character of God. We've not seen these gifts much in church history after the New Testament was completed, and that's because people aren't looking. In the 1600s or late 1500s, there was an outbreak of the miraculous among the Scottish Presbyterians. They saw angels. They saw amazing healings. They had incredible, uh, prophetic, uh, incredible prophetic words. And you can read about that history if you go to old enough uh, books. Um, oh, and here's, my, here's probably my real reason for not believing in it when I was a young professor. People who believe in it are just weird. Well, you look at John the Baptist, you call him pretty weird, wouldn't you? In fact, you call a lot of people in the Bible weird. And the fact that something may be weird or somebody may have a personality disorder that believes something doesn't mean what they believe is wrong. The question is, does the Bible teach this today? And should we be pursuing it? And the Bible says, yeah, pursue it. Now, I came to this conclusion as a professor at a seminary that didn't believe in the gifts. Yeah, the only problem was, uh, now that I believed in it, I felt like I should be doing it. I felt like I should be praying for people, but I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have anyone to help me. And this man who got me to start questioning whether uh, what I believed was really true or not, he says, you know, there's a man named John Wimber. He's in California. He has a really big church, and he believes in all these things, and he's actually seeing blind eyes open, healed right there in his church. He's seeing people get out of wheelchairs, and you should try to meet him and he could really help you. He really believes in the Bible. He's not like your stereotype 
typical Pentecostal or charismatic what you think. Now, he wasn't putting Pentecostals or charismatics down. That was me that was doing that. And he was saying, he's not like what you believe. He really does try to follow the Bible. And following the Bible was and is extremely important to me. So, uh, guess what happened? Two weeks later, John Wimber's coming to my town, Fort Worth, Texas. And he is speaking at Lake Country Baptist Church. So I go, I'm going to go on Thursday night, and I'm going to hear this guy. And I just made that decision, and, and I was walking out of my office and down through the quadrangle at, at my seminary, and there was a group of students standing around to, uh, together. And I heard them talking, and they were talking about John Wimber. Now, I hadn't told anybody what, was, what I'd been exploring or thinking about. I sure didn't tell anybody I was going to a John Wimber meeting. And these students were talking about John Wimber, and I heard one of them say, well, yeah, I heard it from one of our graduates. He was there in the meeting in Australia. And, and here's what happened. John Wimber walked into a room. He lifted up his hands, and he says, come, Holy Spirit. And he said, the people fell on the floor. They started barking like dogs, and they vomited. And I hear that. And the next night, I'm going to a John Wimber meeting. And I'm going, they fell on the floor. They barked, and they vomited. Well, I, don't, I don't know if I want to do that. Um, and I used to do that all the time before I was a Christian. I don't know if I want to go back and start that again. <laughs> so now I'm scared to go to this Wimber meeting. And, and I, my plan was to go by myself and sit on the back. But, but if, you know, that vomiting ministry starts and, uh, and word gets out and they find out I was there, they might think I was participating. And so I get 10 of my most trusted friends from my church, my Bible church, to go. And, and we, like good conservative evangelicals, we arrive late and we sit on the very back row by the door. So if any of that stuff started, we could be the first ones out. And, and also, I got 10 witnesses that could say, now, Professor Deer, he wasn't barking. I was there. I, he, he was just, when we left when that stuff started. So I felt kind of protected, but I was still nervous. Wimber comes out, and he's just, uh, he's just an ordinary guy, and he, and he teaches a story of the Gospels, and I go, man, I could teach that in seminary and wouldn't even raise an eye. I mean, that's just exactly what the book's saying. And, and, um, and, I, and you know what? I found myself liking him. He was so real and transparent. I, thought like, I felt like he was talking to me and instead of somebody looking down, telling me how bad my life was and how it needed to change. I just felt like he's one of the guys. And... Um, I felt myself liking him, actually drawn to him. And then he says, okay, now we're going to do ministry time. And I thought, oh, this is where it gets weird. And so uh, he said, I'm going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come. And I went, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come? I thought he was always here. Uh, and, and the whole, all us 1,200 Southern Baptists in the room, we all kind of just started, it was like people were backing up a little bit. They were a little nervous. And, and, and John's so cool. He goes, uh, wait a minute, you all. We're going to ask for the Holy Spirit. He goes, when you ask for the Holy Spirit, our Father will not give us a scorpion. You know, Luke 11. He goes, the only, he goes he's not going to give you a demon. Just relax. And we went, oh, man. Okay, yeah, of course, that makes sense. That's biblical. And then he says this. The only demons that are going to manifest now are the ones you brought in with you. Now, tension went right back up in the room. And I'm thinking, I wonder if I have any uninvited guests here that I, I didn't know about. Is that where the barking comes in? And so he says, come, Holy Spirit. Now, now this was not a church service. This was like a teaching thing. So I'm, I'm not recommending. I mean, this was like a teaching thing, okay? So 
I could see some of you going, I don't want to go to church like that. Well, we were there to learn something about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It was like a little conference. So he says, come, Holy Spirit. And, you know, that didn't sit well with me. I still have not been able to find that prayer in the Bible. Come, Holy Spirit. David's shaking his head. He doesn't know where it is. And it, it bothered me that John would pray something that wasn't in the Bible. Now, I prayed lots of prayers that weren't in the Bible, but that never bothered me when I prayed them. It's just, I don't know if he should be praying it like that in front of everyone. You know, come, Holy Spirit. Okay. But okay, I'm going to try to keep an open mind. And he just waited for a few minutes, just real, you know, just kind of real at ease. And then he said, okay, I think I know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pr- pray for people with chronic back problems. And he said, if you've got a chronic back problem, come on up and we'll pray for you. And all of a sudden, this whole front was filled with, with, uh, with ministry teams that were actually going to pray for people in church. And some of them couldn't have been more than 17 or 18 years old. And, you know, some were 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever. But yeah, I saw young kids, and they're on a ministry team. And now people with back problems get up, and they start coming to the front. And, uh, and they're actually praying for them in the church. And we'd never done that in my church. And then he said... Um, there's someone else. You, you have a back problem, and you haven't come down. And, and the pain starts right here on the right side of your neck, and it goes down your back, and it wraps around. It comes out here. And you haven't come down. Would you, you please come down? I went, wow. <laughs> now we're, that's like Elisha. I mean, how does he know there's a woman here and that she had that kind of pain, that kind of How does he know that? Wow. And then um, nobody came down. And I thought, poor John Wimber. He was doing so good when he was just talking about the stuff, but when he had to try to go out there and make something happen. And, but I was watching him, and, you know, he was just standing there so relaxed. He wasn't the least bit nervous or perturbed. I didn't see any little beads of sweat, you know, forming right here. He, he just prayed for a second longer, and he said, you went to your doctor uh, this week, and he said, you'd had that pain for three years, and you were just going to have to learn to live with it. But I think the Lord wants to heal you if you'll just come down. And I'm going, that is amazing. Nobody comes down. He prays a second longer, and he goes, your name's Margaret. Margaret, would you please come down? And then right about down here, right, right about here, Margaret gets up, and she starts shuffling to the front like this. Like, why didn't I come the first time, he called. <laughs> I'm sitting on the back row, and I'm just about to burst. I went, this is like Elisha, Elisha, this is incredible ministry. God really does speak. And then all of a sudden, this wave of skepticism came over me, and I go, no, no. That, that is just too good to be true. I go, what if he paid her to do that? You know, what if she's Margaret here on Thursday night, and then when they take this show on Saturday to Lizard Lick, Louisiana. You know, she's Mabel McClutch butt, and, and she comes down to the front with two malignant tumors in an envelope she's coughed up. You know, I, no, nah, I don't believe, no, nah, I don't believe this. I just, and, and about that time, that nausea, that kind of skepticism was coming. I was feeling like, you fool. About that time, the guy next to me, Mike Pinkston, whom I had helped to lead to Christ when he was in high school, he's now like 31 years old, known him for 10 or 12 years. Mike goes, that's Margaret, my sister-in-law. She really has had that for three years. This is amazing. <laughs> Margaret comes down. I forget who prayed for it. It wasn't John Wimber. And she was instantly healed of a pain she was told she'd have to live with for a long time. I was like the second one in line. 
to go to, to talk to John Wimber. How do you do that? How do you? Was it, was it really loud, or was it just subtle, or did, or did you see something like that? Could you just put your hand? Can, can, can you transfer this stuff? You know, and he would slow down, slow down, and that started a friendship between us. And and so I I actually I believed in power, but I really started pursuing power because I want to hear God's voice, and uh, I want to know. Uh, I want to know things about people. I want words of knowledge. And I ended up going on his staff. And one of the most important things, I'll just uh, tell you just a couple things, but one of the most important things I found, found out about moving in power personally or a church moving in power is this. Humble people hear God's voice and can be trusted with power. Now, if you just think about it, uh, who is the humblest man on the face of the earth? Moses. And who heard God's voice better than anybody else? This is all out of Numbers 12. Moses. God says, he's unique among all the prophets. I give the others dreams and visions, and they have to puzzle over dark sayings. But Moses, my servant, he gets it face to face. There's nobody like him on the face of the earth. He is the humblest person on the face of the earth also. See, humble people know it's not their strength, it's not their goodness, it's not their ability to follow, but it's God's goodness and power that make wrong things right. Psalm 138, verse 6 says that God is intimate with the humble, but he knows the proud from afar. So if you want to start experiencing power and you want to have it in your church, then you've got to pursue humility as well. I'll tell you uh, one more story, and then we'll close. I, was, uh, I ended up on John Wimber's staff for about four years. It was an incredible experience. Went around the world with him, watched him do conferences, participate in the conferences. At the time, he had, uh, this was back in the late 80s, he had 5,000 people in his church, and that was like a mega church in those days. But every day, people were coming to that church, sometimes from Germany, from other places in Europe, from across the country, from Australia, and they were just coming to look at the way he ran church, the way he did church, because so many people were getting healed and finding their gifts, and it was just so much fun to go to church there. And one night, I was, uh, uh, I, and I ended up being over the pastors at the church and, and, uh, and preaching in the church, but one night, uh, I, I didn't have any responsibility in the church. I wasn't preaching, and there was nothing for me to do. And so instead of sitting in church that night, I grabbed one of the prophetic guys on staff and I said, come on, we're going to go back to uh, the 10 to 12-year-olds and we're going to teach the 10 to 12-year-olds. We had 150 uh, to 200 10 to 12-year-olds and, and we met in this big warehouse that had been converted into a church and so we go back to teach them. And, and I don't even pray about what I'm going to do when, when I get back there. I already made up my mind what I'm going to do. Is I'm going to let those kids ask me any question they want to out of this book. They can ask any question out of the Bible, what it's like to be a pastor, and, uh, and I'm going to answer it. So I don't even pray about it. Because, I mean, how hard is it to answer a 12-year-old's question, right? You know, I felt overqualified for the task. Actually, I felt awesomely overqualified for the task I could picture it in my mind those kids are going to be so impressed with their pastor and his knowledge of the Bible and how quickly I can answer things this is going to be a good display and uh, that's kind of the attitude I walked in there uh, that night so we got them off the walls and got them all down in one big pile there and I go okay kids ask anything you want first little kid he raises his hand like this he goes pastor jack pastor jack this has been bothering me so bad he goes why does god 
let bad things happen to good people who love him and are trying to follow him. I thought, you know, why does God let bad things happen to people? I mean, you know, you got the book of Job. That's a pretty good study, but it never really tells you why God let all that stuff happen, right? And I'm, all he did was just ask one of the major theological problems for the last 2,000 years that nobody's been able to answer. It's the one the critics use against all of us Christians. But you know, a theologian or somebody who aspires to be a theologian, they, they rarely say, I don't know. And what they do when they don't know is they just lapse into theological jargon and they just keep talking. So I said, well, you see, in the beginning, God wanted friends, not robots. And so he had to give us the gift of uh, free choice. And with the gift of free choice comes the opportunities for evil. And some people are going to take that. And so there's going to be evil and, and suffering. And unfortunately, innocent people are going to get affected by that uh, evil choices of other people. And bad things are going to happen to them. And I just kept going like that for a little while. And I was watching his little eyes. And I could tell he was just stone cold bored. So I stopped when I thought I'd given a sufficient explanation. Next little kid raised his hand. And he says, why did God create the devil? <laughs> oh, well, like you know, huh? <laughs> yeah, maybe Isaiah 14 is talking about, his, about him, and Ezekiel 28 is probably talking about his creation. But you know what? It never says why. So I looked at that little kid, and I said, well, you see, in the beginning, God wanted friends and not robots. And so what he did, <laughs> and they were less impressed the second time. But that was the high point of the evening. It just went downhill from there. It's, I, and I will swear to this day that some demon from hell smuggled in a list of all the unsolved theological problems and said, here, kids, ask him these. So I went on for about 45 minutes, and, and, and I, went, I, I went, that's it. No more questions. And... Uh, and I was going to stop. And we had, I had him for two hours. That was the problem. And I went, no more questions. One little kid on the back row kept waving his hand. I said, no more questions. And he, he would not stop waving, waving his hand. And I go, what? He goes, well, Pastor Jack, I, I, I want to know what Noah and, and, and those people in the ark did when, when they floated on top of the water for that whole year. What, what did they do? I go, that's easy. They fished. <laughs> Little kid next to him shot up his hand real quick, and, and he goes, well, they didn't fish very long. I said, why is that? He goes, well, they only had two worms. <laughs> they, they say a good man knows when he's been beaten. <laughs> I looked over at that prophetic guy I brought in. It was on our staff. And I said, is the Lord showing you anything about these kids? He's not showing me anything. And, and the prophetic guy goes, yeah, I think he has. And they go, here, be my guest. And the, and the prophetic guy looks at this little girl in the front row, she, uh, on, sitting on the right side on the very front row. And he says, uh, what's your name, honey? And she says, Julie. And, and Julie has uh, long red hair. She's kind of skinny, freckles, just as cute as she could be. He said, well, he's showing me something about you about this young man over here, another 12-year-old boy, and he said, and about that lady in the back, and pointed to one of the Sunday school teachers. So he looks over here at Julie, and he says, Julie, while Jack was talking, I had a vision of you. He said, I think it was Tuesday night at your house, and I saw you going up to your bedroom, and uh, you were sitting on your bed, and you were crying. And he says, and honey, 
you're crying really hard. Um, and you looked up and you said, God, do you love me? I have to know, do you love me? And you didn't hear God say anything on Tuesday night. But he sent me here tonight to tell you that he really loves you. And he also wants you to know that trouble going on around you is not your fault. He didn't show me what he's going to do about the trouble, but he wants you to know it's not your fault, honey, and he really loves you. And then he said something about that wonderful over the 12-year-old and then over the lady. I called them all up at the front afterwards and uh, to make sure two things. One, that what was said was true, and two, that they didn't have any misunderstandings about it so they could uh, ask him uh, or, or me. So I go, Julie, uh, were you upstairs in your bedroom on Tuesday night? Were you crying? And she said, yes. And I said, did you pray, God, do you really love me? And she said, yes. And I said, honey, are your parents fighting? She said, yes. I said, are they talking about getting a divorce? She said, yes. And I said, and you think that's your fault? And she looked up and she smiled at me. And she says, not anymore. I walked out of there that night. And, you know, there's a thousand people, a couple thousand people walking out. But I was all alone. And I was thinking about little Julie. And I was thinking, you know, 18 years from now, when she's 30 years old, she won't be sitting in a psychiatrist's office trying to walk through layers of guilt or work through this stuff, condemnation, that's not her own. Because the omniscient spirit of the omnipotent God just came in a room and took all that guilt off of her and told her how much God really loved her and also showed 150 of her little peers that God knows everything that's happening even when you got your bedroom door closed and he still loves you. And I thought about another little 12-year-old boy whose who's, uh, father divorced his mother and the way his father did it was by killing himself. That's how my dad divorced my mom. You see, I know what it's like to go for a long time thinking, if only I'd been better that last week, if only I hadn't said this. And, and my two younger brothers, they know exactly what that's like. And we didn't have any Christian friends. We didn't even go to church. There's no one to, to help us, and there's no one to help undo that twisting. And it would be a long time before some of that got straightened out in us. And I was walking out, and I was thinking, who wouldn't want this ministry in their church? Who wouldn't want it in their church? And you know, the truth is, to get that ministry in your church, you have to be willing to clean up some messes because nobody does this perfectly, and certainly nobody starts out perfectly. But I just made a commitment that night. And I said, Lord, I'll clean up mess after mess to get the reality of your prophetic ministry in our church. And the other thing I thought going out there, the lesson that came to me was, you know, I walked in there that night with an uh, inerrant word, a perfect word under my arm. And I still believe this is the inerrant word of God. Every single word, absolutely true. And I also walked in there with a pretty good working knowledge of this book. But I walked in with a lot of confidence in my knowledge of this book. Now, it's great to have confidence in the book. It may not be so great to have confidence in your knowledge of the book. So much so that I have confidence in here that I didn't even pray. And it's like the Lord looked down 
from heaven and said, you know, Jack, I'd love to use you tonight, but there's an attitude that's blocking my use of you. And uh, so we're going to plan B for you. It's going to involve an attitude adjustment. Now, the prophetic guy walked in differently. The prophetic guy walked in like this. He goes, oh, no, I hope I don't, they don't ask me a biblical question in front of Jack because I don't know the Bible like he does. And so the prophetic guy started praying, Lord, would you please use me? And, uh, and, then, he, and then the Lord goes, yeah, I can use that attitude. That's so, I appreciate that weakness. And so the Lord goes, yeah, I'll show you. I'll show you some things about these kids. Now, here's another thing about the Bible. It's a phenomenal book, favorite book. Read it, love it, want to read it more, want to love it more. But this book did not tell me there's a little 12-year-old girl sitting over there dying under a pile of guilt that's not hers. Now, the book tells me what to do about that little girl when I know it, but it doesn't tell me who that little girl is. I need the prophetic spirit for that, which is just to say, if you want to be a New Testament church, you have to have the Word and the Spirit. Amen? Amen? Lord, would you grant... Here in Beltway, the marriage of the word and the spirit. And would you do it in such a way that the light that this church has now has increased tenfold and that it goes out into the big country, that people will come from far and wide to hear the message and to enter into the presence of God. Would you give them, would you give the leadership here a strategy a divine strategy for the ministry of the word and spirit. For we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Can you tell us, tell Jack, how much you appreciate that? Now, you might be asking the question, when's that kind of thing going to happen around here? And the answer is, it is. See, when I tell you the good stuff of Beltway Park doesn't always happen in here, I could tell you lots of stories like this, and we're asking for more. And maybe you are asking for more. Now, we're going to have prayer partners down here, and they're, 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 they're asking the Lord to do these kind of things as well as they, as they pray for you. And we can pray about any matter, any time.